Hi, I'm Jason Limbeck, and this is Who Lives Like This, where each episode, Elizabeth and I have conversations with our kinds of celebrities, caregivers of kids and young adults with disabilities. Monica Jones abandoned her legal career after her first son was born with a massive unilateral brain malformation, which caused him to have hundreds of seizures a day. The only cure to stop his seizures was to remove half his brain. She has dedicated herself to serving the community of children who need brain surgery to stop seizures that medications cannot control. In 2011, Monica and her husband Brad founded the Brain Recovery Project to help children reach their full potential after epilepsy surgery. She is a staunch advocate for the educational rights of children with disabilities and believes that every child, no matter how complex their support needs, has the capacity to learn. Monica lives in Altadena, California with her husband Brad, her boys Henry and Thomas, and two very spoiled dogs. We covered a broad range of topics, including Monica's work in bringing a foundation to life and her advocacy efforts overall. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Elizabeth. Hey, Jason. How are you? I am pretty good. I have a full nest this podcast to report, meaning the sons are back home from Europe and college and Sophie's here and the house is literally in 20 hours became a wreck. It's unbelievable. Truly unbelievable. <laughs> like I looked down the hallway into the bathroom and there were towels all over the floor. The living room was covered with, I don't know what it is, clothes, sweatshirts, underwear. The kitchen had drawers open with snack foods. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. So I'm not complaining. I'm so thrilled to have my nest full, but very odd how quickly it becomes mayhem. Yeah. And how long is this going to last? It's going to be the next month, which is so nice. It really is. That's sweet. But it's yeah. hilarious how, you know, everything was so quiet, pristine, but you know, I complained about that. But this morning when I walked into the kitchen and saw all the crap out, I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe this. I cannot believe it in 24 hours that, you know, they just got home and they were already like eating at like 11 o'clock at night <laughs> and not cleaning up. And you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like a cliche, I know, but it's really fun. And how are you? And it was so fun. I should brag that I got to go to... Uh, your house for a Hanukkah party or a latkes. And I yeah, met- Yeah, latke party. Yeah, I met so many um, wonderful people. And I think I told you how your little boys sort of, I noted how your little boys were around Sophie. Yeah, who's usually ignored at parties, but your little boys, it's not like they paid attention to her in as much as they were completely, they would like rest their, they're little for listeners. They're, you know, really young, her, her, Jason's sons, but they would be running around with all the other kids and they would stop like at her wheelchair and kind of put their hand on Sophie's leg and then run around or kind of climb over her, the pedals, the foot pedals. You know, the other kids, of course, look terrified when they see a wheelchair, but your sons were, they practically climbed on top of it. It was awesome. That's yeah. so cool. It warmed yeah. my heart. Yeah, it was yeah. so wonderful to have both of you there. And, you know, they've heard uh, your voice and, and they've met you a couple of times. And, but to get to meet Sophie and uh, have you guys over for lots of latkes was awesome. Yeah, we should tell everybody too that when I drove Sophie up, I, opened the door and I had to go find a parking <laughs> space. And there was a split second where I thought, 
Jason could just take her into the party and I could leave and she would be safe. She would be perfect. So I think I told my mother, I didn't tell you this. I didn't tell you this, but my mother would be so pleased. She'd finally have a granddaughter (laughs) after having seven grandsons. Yeah. It was like, okay, bye. See you later. And then I'd be (laughs) off to Bora Bora. (laughs) Cool. Let's welcome Monica to the show. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to have you on, and we're really excited to talk about a number of different things, but we'd love to uh, start with, if you could, give us a brief snapshot of yourself and your family. Sure. Let's see. I live in a suburb of Los Angeles, Pasadena. I've never left a 15-minute radius of my home, my childhood home. I think I'm the only person in LA who's like that. My first son, Henry, was born with a massive unilateral brain malformation that caused him to have quite literally hundreds of seizures a day. Uh, They were drug resistant. He was on a cocktail of five anti-epileptic drugs. By the time he was three months old, he started having a specific type of seizure called infantile spasms at, at one month old, and those can be catastrophic to development. He failed meds for that. We had to put him into a coma when he was three months old and then have a procedure known as a hemispherectomy, which is removing or disconnecting half of the brain. That's a very long story, very short. There's a lot more after that, but I think that really captures sort of the beginning of our journey. I have another son who's typically developing, who's 10 years old and married to my husband from Chicago. We've got two dogs, I guess, otherwise just a regular family. Yeah, you mentioned in your write-up that uh, the dogs are spoiled. Are they? Uh, how are they with the boys? They're great. They're two uh, All-Americans, I like to call them, a 30-pound, 14-year-old, and a 50-pound, we don't know what they are. Uh, Jake is five years old and uh, is the, the most misbehaved dog in the world. So. <laughs> yeah. So how is your son today? Yeah, that's a loaded question. How is he? He's great. He is not having seizures as far as we know. He is great for him. I think if um, I'm to compare him to neurotypical children, then I think the, the comment might be different. But my son is happy. He's joyful. He is very loved. He has parents who care, love him as is. He has a brother who loves him as is. And we are very strong advocates for him. He is nonverbal, but he's learning how to speak on an iPad. He walks with great difficulty, and I would uh, suspect he has pretty significant intellectual impairment. It takes him a very, very long time to learn simple things. He's still in diapers at 12 and still likes to watch shows like Elmo and is still, you know, reacts to things like a two or a three-year-old, but he's a very happy kid. And so you, through this that journey, you decided to set off and start a, a foundation the Brain Recovery Project. And we'd love to hear a little bit more about that. When did you come up with the idea and how did you get it off the ground? So my son's actually had 10 total brain surgeries. He had three hemispherectomy related procedures. So after that that first surgery at three months old, where they didn't actually remove half his brain, they removed some of it and disconnected the rest. The seizures came back he had a what we call a revision surgery, which is going back in to try to find the missed connection. These are the fibers of the brain that connect the hemispheres from left to right and through the middle, so to speak. And then seizures came right back right after that. These disconnection surgeries are really difficult, especially on young babies and especially in children who had my son's condition known as hemimegalencephaly. 
So when he was three and a half months old, we went back in and had to completely remove the left hemisphere of his brain, the cerebral cortex of his brain, not actually everything. So I had a conversation with his neurosurgeon really late one night. I actually think it was four in the morning when he was starting to round. And I said, you can't keep doing this to children and then not have a roadmap for parents afterwards. I was actually in a really angry place right then because we didn't know what to do with our child afterwards to help him learn how to walk and learn how to talk. And was he ever going to read? What was his life going to be like? There was no roadmap because research wasn't really focusing on what the effects of these surgeries are and how to improve the outcomes. I kind of yelled at him. I have to be honest with you. I was really upset. And he came back in a few hours later and said, well, if you're serious about this, let's do it. So we put our heads together and started the organization in 2011. And initially, it was just to try to improve functional outcomes after hemispherectomy surgery, which is removing or disconnecting half the brain. Over time, though, and I'm, I'm a very, very involved in social media and parts of, you know, lots of different groups of parents with epilepsy kids with epilepsy, I saw that there was really an underserved community of parents who are considering brain surgery to stop their child's seizures. And for those kids who do have some of these, you know, I call them smaller surgeries, but they're still pretty big, you know, just removing a a frontal lobe or just removing part of your temporal lobe. There's really very little we know about the effects of these surgeries and how to improve the outcomes. So in 2017, we expanded our reach to understand and improve functional outcomes after all these big surgeries, whether it's one lobe of the brain or multiple lobes, as well as helping parents understand when it's time to think about brain surgery to stop your child's seizures. It's actually much sooner than most parents understand and that much sooner than most clinicians understand. I actually, as we're listening, and I I told Jason this before we were going to have the podcast, like, And I actually feel it happening (laughs) as I'm listening to you, which is almost, I mean, I don't want to describe it as a PTSD, but it kind of is where my heart is pounding against my chest and I'm breathing (laughs) kind of heavily. It affects me so much. And what affects me right now about hearing you is how, you know, you, you had this in 2011 and yet, and then in 2017, you're talking about educating parents. And I'm kind of flipping hats, my own hats, and as an advocate and a very early advocate in the 1990s, when I started down this journey and started a foundation to, it constantly floors me how glacial the pace is and how parents do the heavy work. And we do it because what other choice do we have? You know, when you said you were angry, I think I probably even know who that surgeon is. And I felt I was going to get angry too. And I was going to be, you know, start letting the F-bomb fly. And then when you said 2017, I'm like, oh my God, you know, 2017. I mean, there were children getting hemispherectomies in the 90s. You know, it's just kind of shocking. So partly I'm thank you for what you're doing. And I feel like maybe now with social media and technology increases literal communication things, families will be given more of a a roadmap. But it's, uh, you know, my personality is more of, you know, feeling sort of rueful, I guess. I have a whole chapter, a bunch of chapters in my book about the conversations that went around 
brain surgery. And I like how you said just a frontal lobectomy, just a temporal. Like it just, it brings up so much for me. Where are you now? Where is the organization now? Because I do understand that earlier and earlier for kids with epilepsy, they can be identified as surgical candidates given better imaging, get given everything better. I mean, back in the 90s, their imaging wasn't even good enough for it, so they couldn't even identify them. But where is it now as far as, and what do you see as the resistance to it, other than the obvious resistance of the horror that is contemplating having your child's brain operated on? Where would be the resistance for you as far as educating and having a roadmap and all of that? Well, I think there's resistance on all fronts. So parental resistance would come from a lack of understanding about the efficacy and safety of brain surgery. A lot of that can come because the the neurologist or the neurosurgeon isn't explaining it to you in a way that is understandable. Sometimes the conversations are too quick, or sometimes the neurologist is so against surgery that they're painting it in such a way that is draconian. The best example of that would be uh, Netflix just ran an episode in their show called Diagnosis, where the child might have needed a hemispherectomy. And this is a neurologist at a top facility in the country describing it as, as barbaric. So what parent wants to do something that's barbaric to their child? I certainly don't. I think there's resistance on the part of the neurological community as well, because there are The test is if your child has failed two meds or if your child has a condition known to be drug resistant, like hemimegalencephaly, which was my son's condition, or if your child has a type of seizure that is known to be catastrophic, like infantile spasms, you're supposed to have a surgical evaluation. Does this mean you've decided to have surgery? No, it doesn't. I think it's every parent's right to have all cards on the table. You make the decision as a parent based on the information you have. Nobody has the right to take that away from you. So that's really what we do on the parental education side is helping them understand. This is when you ask for a surgical evaluation, and then you weigh your options with the data that you have. We launched a registry, so I understand that we have to talk to doctors in a way that is their language, so to speak. So we now have a registry of close to 300 patients It's where parents answer questions about their surgical journey. And we're starting to capture these journeys in a data-driven way. So we can go back to the professional community and say, X number of parents regret surgery. X number of parents wish surgery was presented as a treatment option sooner. This is the percentage of children that can walk postoperatively. This is the percentage of children that can read. Capturing this in a data-driven way that speaks both to parents and doctors is really important. So that's really an exciting thing that happened for us this year. Yeah, it's very similar to me as not similar, but you know that the whole thing about catastrophic epilepsies. I mean, my daughter was diagnosed with infantile spasms, which is a catastrophic epilepsy, and after the second drug, like you said, you rarely get seizure control. But meanwhile, though, we went on to be given 22 drugs in over a period of 15 years when I think I finally said, you know, this is BS. And unless Jesus himself offers me a drug, we're not going to do this anymore. And Jesus didn't, but that's when we found cannabis medicine, which we jumped all over. Yet still, there's so much resistance even to that when 
you know, the drugs and surgery are, I mean, it just kind of blows my mind. And I wonder, do you find yourself more on the defense with the professional side? Or do you find that they are partners in this educational thing? Because listen, I'm not just saying this because it's what I feel. This is all based on research. This is based on consensus publications by the International League Against Epilepsy, for example. So nothing is on our website that's there just because we want it to be there, right? It's all based on research. Sometimes I find myself, to be honest with you, on the defensive with the cannabis parents. The worst thing that's ever been said to me was a very well-known cannabis dad who said to me that all kids after hemispherectomy are like vegetables. I've seen them. I've met over 700 children who've had hemispherectomy, and I know very few, if any, I would characterize as a vegetable. Yeah, that's a terrible thing to say anyway, uh, for anything. Yikes. Yep. There are some cuckoo people in the cannabis world, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to share, as an organization, what the science says. And for me, it's, I think it's every parent's right to understand what the science says. I know a lot of parents who have tried cannabis. Should you delay surgery because of cannabis or should you delay a surgical evaluation because you want to try cannabis? Definitely not the first, the latter. I mean, you should have a surgical evaluation right. while you're trying it, right? Because the phase one is, is non-invasive. But until the research says that cannabis or cannabidiol is effective for these massive cortical dysplasias, how is it working for infantile spasms? I know UCLA has a big cannabis project, cannabis research project. We know anecdotally through Facebook that it's working for some children with IS. Is it working for all of them? No. We don't know percentage-wise who it's working for. So my worry is there's that parent of the three-month-old who's seizing uncontrollably because they have a massive brain malformation, and now they want to try cannabis, and we know time is brain even with infantile spasms. So I worry about that delay. That's what worries me. Right. I think when I was, what I was saying before was there isn't any scientific evidence that shows that multiple drugs at some point finally kick in. In fact, it's to the opposite effect. So I think that mistrust that begins, and particularly, I think that would speak to a lot of the cannabis parents who are probably averse to literally anything neurology says because of their experiences. You know, no one said, here, let's try the seventh or eighth or ninth drug and gave you the evidence that this indeed has happened. So my question was mainly like getting over that hump, which is a very real hump. I mean, they're just like there's no the anecdotal comment, you know, putting a newborn baby on four different anti-epileptic drugs there's no evidence that that would help. You know what I'm saying? So I was wondering your organization, if you find yourself helping educate families and if you're in opposition to the neurology community. But, and one of the things I was struck by, and I've this we've come across in different kind of conversations and different diagnoses, but the fact that the intervention is done and what are the implications and what's the roadmap after the intervention that wasn't on their mind, you created a foundation to capture that information, share that information with families. And it sounded like you had one neurologist or neurosurgeon, at least one, but that partnered up on that. But it's, you know, I think we've all found that uh, that's transactional nature of um, interventions 
versus looking at the whole picture is, is a big frustration. Yeah, it, it exists in our community too. I mean, I think very few surgeons would say, oh, my research interests are in understanding and improving the functional outcomes postoperatively. Their main interest is stopping the seizures, which are tied to improve functional outcomes, right? So you stop the seizures and my son blossomed after that first surgery. My gosh, he didn't do anything before that first surgery. He was basically unconscious from the drugs all day. We would wake him up, give him the medicine, and then he would start seizing or pass out or, you know, kind of go unconscious from the drugs. And then once the seizure stopped after three months old, I mean, it was like a light went off. All of a sudden he could look around. He was looking at me smiling. He started to drink from a bottle, all of these things. So our resistance, I guess, if I would say it's, I've had some surgeons say to me, you know, you're scaring families away from the surgery because your website has so much honest content about what we know and what we don't know. And for me, I said, listen, you're right as a parent to know. We really don't understand the long-term implications of doing some of these surgeries. Now, the parents come to our conferences where they meet hundreds of other children that have had these surgeries. And you see, no, they're not doing as poorly as someone thinks that they're doing if you've never talked about a big surgery like this. So I still get people that say, oh my God, removing half a brain, can they even live? Yeah. I know some adults who are in college have had half the brain removed. My friend Robert got his graduate degree in social work. So we have a spectrum of outcomes, but yes, we have these adults who are doing really, really well. And we're trying to track now the children who have had these surgeries to see how they do. I know very few parents who regret surgery. I think that's important to note. I know very few parents that regret the surgery. And I would say over 50% of them wish surgery was presented as a treatment option sooner. Yeah, it's very strange. I guess it's a confluence of things that where surgery isn't. It's about payment, reimbursement. There's so many issues that are at play. When I did work with um, NICHQ, the National Institute for Children's Healthcare Quality in Boston, I did some epilepsy collaborative work um, and was a parent co-chair. And we often had big, very divisive discussions about surgery and why it wasn't presented sooner, especially in the 2000s when it became, when the imaging sort of exploded and you could actually do it. I mean, before that, and I don't know, I mean, a lot of it does have to do with something as horrible and transactional as Medicare reimbursement or insurance reimbursement or or whatever it is, the structure of our healthcare system to begin with. It's so complicated. Yeah, what we've seen time and time again is that it usually ends up being advocates, either self-advocates or parent advocates for children that uh, have to do the work on the ground to build this up. And I gather, Monica, from your work on the foundation and building this foundation up, that's brought uh, purpose to your life. And um, what I can also imagine is uh, brings its own stressors because you're not only advocating for your own child, but for other people. And it sounds as if this is a full-time job and then some, but has that been the case for your work or are you also doing other things? No. <laughs> like what? <laughs> I had abandoned my career um, when my son was born. So I think 
that was difficult for me psychologically to just can't do this anymore, even though you came from a very modest background and paid, I think my law school loans were $110,000. And I paid them all off myself and practice law and then boom, can't do that anymore because it's impossible. We've talked so much about that and um, particularly for women who have had to put their careers on hold or never go back to them. Um, I love what I do. I love it. I wake up at four in the morning. And the first thing I do is, you know, make a cup of coffee and get on my computer to see what I need to do for the day. I feel like I have this is my calling. I'm very analytical, thanks to my legal background. And I'm really good at seeing things from both sides. And I kept my head to the ground for head, not head to the ground. How do you say it? Kind of my head down and in the books for a long time so that I could really understand this. I think it's really dangerous to just go out into the world of a nonprofit and advocate for something when you don't understand it, especially something as complicated as brain surgery, big brain surgeries to stop seizures. So we came into this space very slowly and sort of under the radar. I'm not unhappy. I have to say I don't have... I'm not sad about things with my son. I have a friend, Lori. Um, she's just one of these brilliant, brilliant women. I met her at UCLA's early intervention program. She has a child with some pretty profound and, and complex disabilities and challenges. And one day I was talking to her and, and I said, you know, gosh, I, Henry's still not walking and I'm trying to do this and this hasn't worked. And she looked at me and she said, what are you complaining about? That's the body he comes in. That's what you get. And she was so honest with me and just looked me in the eye and paused. I thought to myself, you're right. Why am I complaining about this child? This is the body he came to this earth in, and I'm going to do my best to help him thrive, but I am not going to be sad or upset about who he is. I'm going to be his best advocate, but I don't ever want him to see sadness in my face when he looks at me. I think the medical challenges are rough. You know, like I said, we've had 10 brain surgeries, five orthopedic procedures, all of these other things. And that's what I don't like. I don't want him to be in pain, but the rest of it, it is who he is. And that's what I mean. We love him as is. And I, and I want other parents to do that too. I think in our disability world, we can be so sad and upset about who our kids are that we forget that we're projecting that sadness outwardly, and it takes away from who they are as human beings. And if we want the world to change how they look at our children, it has to start with us. Yeah, I would agree. It's uh, it's interesting to think about uh, how this comes about in different ways, whether it's in school, you know, sort of the inclusion debates, and we've... Uh, talked about it in other ways that it comes to life. And even in the intro, talking about siblings of kids with disabilities and how they come at it, that perspective almost naturally just growing up because this is typical for them. You said Thomas, is is he a year or two younger than Henry? He's 10. So he's two years and seven months. It's good. You know, Henry doesn't really play with him. I think the last year or two, we have started to see some challenges in terms of how Henry deals with his brother. So one thing is he's embarrassed of his brother. So my son is nonverbal. Henry's nonverbal. He can be really loud. So if we go into a target, you you know we're coming. He's shouting. He's hooting and hollering because he's happy to be there. He flaps his arms. And 
everybody turns around. And there are days when Thomas is fine. He'll push his brother in the wheelchair, not a problem. And there are other days when he'll just look at me and say, gosh, mom, everyone is staring at us. We have no anonymity in everywhere we go. There's no anonymity. And he feels that. He doesn't want me to bring his brother to school. So when I drop him off, you know, he at drop off line, he opens the the van door and closes it as fast as humanly possible. So none of the other kids see his, his brother. So we're trying to work through that in a way that honors Thomas's feelings about his brother. I'm not going to shove my politics down his throat and tell him you have to accept him as is. And he has honest feelings that he's feeling. So that's what we're trying to navigate right now. And then he surprises me. I'll turn around and say, okay, mom, bring Henry to school today. Oh, okay. (laughs) I don't know if you get the chance. We had a podcast with two young men, one of them, my son, Henry, and the other, um, his roommate in college who has three siblings who are triplets, who all three have various disabilities. They were preemies and they're all three autistic. One has cerebral palsy as well and behavioral issues. And the whole podcast speaks to basically what you are going through now. Um, we They were very honest about the various stages. They're both in their early 20s now. And it was a real eye-opener even for me as the parent of one of them to hear it. And I'd assure you all that will, it'll all be okay because you're attitude is such that it is. But I'm more on the scale of people who I think fervently that as far as projecting sadness, I feel strongly that we live in a culture that makes that feeling sad is somehow not good when actually I, th- I feel like it's a very normal emotion. But I also think that it's the systems that we have in place. I mean, after doing going through it for 25 years, I can honestly say that at no point have I ever looked even with pity on my daughter other than when she's, you know, seizing and has gashed her head or knocked out her teeth or one of those things. Yes, that's horrific. It makes me very, very sad. But the systems that surround us, education, medical, you know, just the attitudes toward people with disabilities, I don't think those are a reflection of the what I put out, but more of a reflection of how people perceive difference in general, not unlike racial and religious difference. It's the other, that kind of philosophical thing. So, But I do think that the kids, the siblings, they're sort of pure about it. Like they act exactly how one should act, I guess, and then they get through it. I, I can count Oh my God, so many times where, you know, my youngest son in particular would actually ask me if it was okay if he kicked somebody in the shins for staring at his sister or be so angry and frustrated. And I always thought, you know, that would be, that's an Mm. appropriate response. (laughs) My gosh. (laughs) But, you know, just the talking about it, I think, is so good. And if we could all just let the siblings be who they are and talk about it and, it sounds like your Thomas is extraordinary. He's honest and you're open to hearing it no matter. But it's so hard on the parents to figure out what's the best way to be. You know, there are great swaths of time where my sons had nothing to do with their sister. And I would think anguish and think like they don't pay attention to her and on and on and on. But those times would pass. 
And then when I heard my son talking about her and his childhood, you know, it made my mouth drop open because they're essential to their who they are. I mean, Henry is essential to Thomas and who he's becoming. And I feel like both Toby and Henry in that podcast said the same thing, that they are who they are because of their siblings. What they are is an amazing and great thing. So, yeah, I think that's wonderful. Yeah. And Jason's little boys are, are, they're already are who they are because of Noah. It is funny to see, and you, you went through this, Elizabeth, but the different personalities and Elliot and Isaac, obviously they're going to be own beings and how that manifests. But I think that's a, the framework that you described, Monica, of, you know, allowing them to have those feelings and, and engaging them in that is, is a helpful framework. You know, it reminded me, Monica, when you said that about pushing your own political thing on him, it reminded me when Henry was like in high school and I thought it would be a great idea if he and his girlfriend could organize like a special needs prom at their school. It would be so fabulous. And I was like, it would be great on your college applications and all this stuff. And Henry, like at some point goes, mom, I don't want to do that. And I was like, why not? And he was like, because I don't want to do that. I have that is my life. And I want my I don't want to do it in high school, too. I just don't want to do it. And it took my breath away. I was sort of embarrassed at myself. But I also realized like, wow, okay. I mean, he's still a fantastic kid just because he's not, you know, didn't want to do it. But I, you know, I admit to feeling a slight bit of disappointment. <laughs> but then, but then, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I think it's so important that we let them live their lives as well. And it's so hard for them to live their lives. It really is. Yeah, we have no idea. I mean, we're the parents, right? This is new to us too. No one prepared me for this. No. So I can't right. afford to know how he's supposed to live his life. Right. Um, so I, I try my best. I'm not perfect. Trust me, we've had our moments. Do you um have, as part of your organization, do you, uh, like, I, I'm assuming it's like very family centered. And do you like advocate for siblings in this whole process? Are they part of... Not yet. We have at our conference this year. So we do, the, they used to be annual conferences and now they're biennial because they're just so much work to organize. But we did have a sibling session where a panel of older siblings came in to talk about their journeys with their, their brothers and sisters. It's certainly something we hope to do at some point, but programs are expensive. So uh, as we build out our programs, we have to find funding for them. I don't want to do anything sort of just because we want to. We have to make sure we have the support for it. At the conferences, I will say, you know, the siblings all know each other. So my Thomas is really good friends with Caden, who's, I think, 18 and just went off to college. And he knows that Caden's sister uses a wheelchair and you have to push her around and she's fed through a tube. So Thomas will tube feed her because he's buddies with Caden showed him how to tube feed her. And there is where Thomas feels great and important um, because he's Henry's brother. It's outside. I wanted to make just a quick comment. You know where, where people and children stare the most? Have you ever noticed where they stare the most? At a children's hospital. I feel it. Staring the worst at the children's hospital. And it really taught me it's because everybody's a, trying to figure out exactly what it is your kid has, and is it at all related to what their child has? Or you're thinking, oh, I'm glad I don't have that, right? 
I had one little boy say, mommy, what is wrong with that boy? And I looked over at this child and he had a tracheotomy and he had a facial malformation. But to him, it was my son who looked weird. So it was really a lesson for me to not take everything so personally when people are staring. They're staring because son is different. He is different. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great point. I hadn't thought about that. But now as I think about my journey through C8 Children's Hospital Los Angeles, that, that's definitely true. We have a little bit of time here, so we want to make sure we get to the lightning round. Um, we have a couple of questions to ask, and uh, you can obviously pass if you don't uh, feel like you have an answer. But the first question is, what purchase of $100 or less has most positively most positively impacted your life as a caregiver in the last year or so? <laughs> what purchase of $100 or less my life? as a caregiver. We've had everything from Velcro cleaner to tricks to make uh, wheels run smoothly. It runs the gamut. So don't overthink it. (laughs) I don't think anything. I was going to say we got a coffee maker where we can make those individual cups of coffee. I really like that in the morning. I don't have to make it too hot. Yeah, no, I I hate to say it. I really don't have anything to say other than... um, yeah, no, sorry. That's good. We can pump the Keurigs out there. So get get yourself a Keurig. I want to be environmentally correct here. We don't put the Keurig pods in there. We have one of the little little things that you can put the coffee in. But oh, yeah. Cool. Uh, yeah, we really like that. And it makes a really fast cup of coffee. So that's been critical is when you wake up, you need, I need yeah, more. Yeah, that's a good one. Really. Yeah, I don't have to use the whole pot to fill that's up. That's great. <laughs> Yeah, you're a 4 a.m. waker-upper, so. I am. Yeah. (laughs) How about a book, uh, a favorite book that you've read in your journey, whether it's, it it doesn't have to be a book related to caregiving, but sometimes it is, or do you know of one that you like that you recommend to other people in the journey or people who do what you do? I cope with this by reading science. So that is my coping mechanism. I need to understand what it is that my son has. So uh, Mo Castandi published a book called Neuroplasticity. Mm, it's this yeah. book. It's a super easy read, yes. but it's very informative and cautions us against throwing around that word. Like, you know, if you do things when the kid is young enough, they're going to be fine. Uh, no, they're not. There's some children who have CP for the rest of their lives, and there's very little you can do for them afterwards, and that's okay too. I love that book. I think if you want to start doing a, a dive into the brain, that would be where I would start is with neuroplasticity. It's really a quick read. Great. And then last but not least, an inspirational person or group for you along the journey as a caregiver. An inspirational person or group. I'm I'm not a very interesting interviewee. <laughs> you know, I'm going to say my husband, and here's why. Because we have been such a team throughout all of this, I can always look to him for support. I can always look to him for trust. I can always look to him for companionship. We're a team. Our family unit is very strong. It's not perfect. We fight like everybody else does. We have our moments. I throw stuff. I'm a thrower. Don't throw binders because they're really heavy. And when you throw them, all the papers fly out. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't recommend that. But, you know, we wake up in the morning and we talk to each other. We stay connected. We go out at least once a week. We Whether you call it date night or whatever, or friends come over. We made a promise to one another very early on that our marriage would be the foundation for everything related to our children. 
especially, you know, when Henry was born, because we could see that if we focused only on him, that our marriage would collapse. The weight of his diagnoses, the surgeries, his care would, would collapse our marriage. It would cause it to, it would destroy it. So he'll be in the hospital and I will call the babysitter. Henry will be in the hospital. I'll call the babysitter to come in and sit with him. We go out to dinner. We go out with our friends. We have our friends over. We make sure that that part of our lives stays intact because it would be very easy for Henry to control everything. So I pick my husband for that answer. Wonderful. Thank you. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I appreciate that. And we really appreciate your time and uh, the work that you're doing and advocating individually and, and at uh, the scale of the Brain Recovery Project. So thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks. Thanks again to Monica for sitting down with us. If you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find more episodes by visiting us at wholiveslikethispodcast.com. 